Coming up today, we go on a quest to find out how to make cheesy cheese-free cheese and delve into New Zealand's COVID-19 bin mystery. You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business, cheese and bins. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me today are Matt Reynolds. Hello. Vicky Turk. Hello. And Amit Katwala. Hello. This was the week when Education Secretary Gavin Williamson called for mobile phones to be banned from schools as their overuse in lockdown had affected children's discipline and order. Millions of children across the country have relied on technology for education and a social life during lockdown, but Williamson now claims that phones distract from good old-fashioned play. This was also the week when the UK launched the Digital Markets Unit, a new unit inside the Competition and Markets Authority aimed at tackling big tech companies. It will look to create new codes of conduct for the likes of Facebook and Google. And finally, this was the week when physicists found some funny muons. Following some previous observations of strange behaviour in muon particles, researchers at Fermilab reported an anomaly in how muons spin, behaviour that is not explained by the standard model. It's very exciting as it could be a hint of new physics, but more research is currently going on to confirm the results and see what they can tell us. I'm not going to ask anyone to give us a detailed off-the-bat explanation of muons and how this could be a, a new frontier for forces of nature, but it is absolutely fascinating. Uh, aside from muons, what did we learn this week? Amit, I'll start with you. So I learnt that some fish eggs can survive after passing through a duck. Uh, so they get eaten by the duck and pooped out at the other end, but they can still survive and hatch and become fish. And scientists think this might be one of the ways that isolated bodies of water get colonised with fish. This was one of the big mysteries of science for a long time as to how these kind of individual lakes that might be separated by, you know, mountains or deserts all had species of fish in them, even though there were no waterways leading to or from them. And this is one of the, re- one of the ways they think this might be happening. So you're suggesting that ducks are like aquatic bees? Yes, yes, exactly. And it's a very succinct way of putting it. Ducks are aquatic bees. Good to know. Love ducks. Vicky, what did you learn this week? Uh, well, on the Fermilab theme, theme, I've got a, a historical fact about Fermilab. In 1971, Fermilab tried to clean its particle accelerator using a live ferret. So when the particle accelerator wasn't working... Uh, They thought there must be some sort of blockage in the tube or something, but they didn't know how best to clean it. And a British engineer who had seen ferrets used in hunting suggested sending one down the tubes, like you might send a ferret down into a rabbit's warren. And that's exactly what they did. They got a ferret called Felicia, wearing a little nappy so she didn't leave droppings and cause a new blockage herself. Uh, And they started putting her down the tubes. Around a year later, she was replaced by a mechanical version. Uh, But, you know, obviously her legacy lives on. So she she wasn't good enough? She had to be replaced by a robot, surely? Well, I understand, actually, what happened was um, initially they tried to put her down sort of the, one of the main particle accelerator tubes. This is why, while it was being built, so obviously it wasn't turned on. She wasn't in, in danger of being radiated or anything <laughs> like that. Uh, but she wouldn't go. So they had to put her down shorter ones first and kind of build up to longer tubes. 
Um, and I think eventually, you know, they were getting too big that putting a live animal down there. I mean, I think the the particle accelerator at Fermilab is sort of four miles long or something. Uh, so really a, a mechanical one would work better. Uh, and sadly, she passed away of, of an unrelated illness uh, a year later in 1972. I'm very glad to hear that it was un- unrelated. RIP indeed. Uh, the RSS feed was fixed this week. So thanks so much for sticking with us through the minor technical hiccup. If you want to share your love for our humble podcast, do please leave a five-star review or a four-star one will do if you think we've got room for improvement. Subscriber Vic, who I presume isn't you, Vicky. <laughs> no, it's not me using a pseudonym to say how great we are. Excellent. Uh, says we're the best informal yet informative news podcast that they listen to, while Hapino says the show has a fantastic mix of personalities. So there we go. We do like praise, so leave us a review if you feel so inclined. Now, our first story this week. Like a lot of people, I've been looking rather enviously at New Zealand for many, many months. COVID-19 almost eliminated, life back to normal, no grim daily death tolls. It's almost like looking at another world. But Matt, you've spent the last week or so reporting on a story about the extraordinary lengths that New Zealand has to go to to keep COVID at bay. And it turns out it all started with a national obsession with a bin. That's right. As you say, when it comes to the pandemic, New Zealand may as well be another world. So since the start of the pandemic, the country's had just 29 deaths and around 2,500 cases out of a population of just under five million. And since September, almost every single new case of coronavirus in New Zealand has been imported. And that means it comes from someone travelling from outside the country. A case of community transmission, and that's when someone with no travel links to abroad contracts a disease, is a really, really big deal. A single case of community transmission leads to local lockdowns and sets news coverage for a week. There's a case of community transmission in February in Auckland, I think, and that put the region into lockdown, and it was a huge, huge deal in New Zealand. Now, in September... New Zealand authorities detected a case of COVID-19 in the community. So people were very worried, thinking, where did it come from? What's going on here? And it was from a person who had flown to Christchurch from Delhi, completed their 14-day mandatory quarantine, which includes two negative COVID-19 test results, then flown on to Auckland, where they later tested positive for the virus. Now, How these case reports worked is all these people get code names to protect their identities. So this person was called Person G. The question was, how did G contract COVID-19? Because if they picked it up in a coffee shop or in a supermarket, it'd mean there's community transmission. And that'd mean an outbreak and it'd mean the region would have to go into lockdown. It's a real hunt, isn't it? Proper detective work. So we've got this flight from Delhi to Christchurch. This person, as you say, they complete the quarantine, then they fly to Auckland, and then they test positive for COVID. So it seems likely that they got infected on that second flight. And, and, and that's what ended up being the case. And there were two other people on that flight, right, who were also infected. So now we've got to work it back even further. How did those people get infected? Exactly. So these two people that G sat to, uh, sat next to or near to on that flight, they're called D and E. And as you said, they also later tested positive for COVID-19. So we've got three people, they've had a link, they've been infected. It's likely this transmission happened in the flight. As you said, James, the question is, how did D and E get infected? Because these two people, they're an adult 
and a child were in mandatory hotel isolation for the 14 days before they took that flight. And theoretically, it should have been, should have been impossible for them to have contracted COVID-19 while in quarantine. So in these converted hotels, people stay in their rooms, they have their food delivered, and they have two COVID-19 tests throughout their stay. And only when people test negative are they allowed to leave the quarantine. If they test positive, they have to stay until another quarantine period is, um, is up. But D&E had to have caught this virus somehow. And it seems super likely that they caught it while they were in this mandatory quarantine. Now, health investigators realised that these people were in the room next door to another patient who did have COVID-19 because they did test positive during their stay. They tested positive on the 12th day when they had one of these routine PCR tests. And although the three of them never met in person, we're talking about C, D and E, they did share a bin that was in the hotel corridor you know, between their two rooms or near their two rooms. And health authorities figured that the person C had touched this bin and 20 hours later, D touched it as well while dropping off some rubbish. And when D touched it, they picked up the virus and infected themselves and passed it on to E. So all this suspicion centred on this bin that they thought had been this route of transmission between two touches that were 20 hours separated. It seems incredibly unlikely that the bin was the source of this outbreak. Everything that we know about how COVID is transmitted, but we've, we've got this bin and this bin becomes nationwide news in New Zealand. Everyone is fascinated by this bin. So put us out of our misery. Was the bin the source of the COVID outbreak? No, or at least we don't really think so. It's worth restating just how big a deal this bin was. It was all over the New Zealand news. This is in October. People were saying, great, we found it. We know the bin's the responsible, so we know this person didn't pick it up in the community. We know, yeah, we can trace exactly where this virus came from. But it turns out that it probably wasn't the bin. And the thing is, is that this kind of transmission as is suggested by this bin transmission, is actually really unusual. We don't have many documented cases where people have picked up the virus after touching an infected surface, particularly as it's pretty unlikely that enough infectious virus particles could hang around for 20 hours. Early on in the pandemic, we thought this might have been a common route of transmission, touching infected surfaces, what's called fomite transmission. And that's why there was so much advice around hand washing. And it's also why, you know, there was some advice around people washing their groceries when they got them or wiping down door handles and all things like that. But now we think that airborne transmission is much, much more common. So more emphasis is being put on ventilation, it's being put on space. You see that in the UK, the government advice now has something about fresh air, you know, hands, face, space. This idea that ventilation is is, is very useful in terms of reducing transmission. So an analysis of CCTV footage from the hotel showed that on the 12th day of their quarantine, there was a 50 second window where patient C door was open while they were being tested for COVID-19. So remember, patient C is next door to the room where patient D and E are. And although these two adjacent doors were never open at the same time, researchers think that this was enough time for viral particles that are emitted by C to blow into the corridor. Therefore, there's an air pressure that basically blew air from the the room into the corridor and that these infectious particles would linger in the air long enough to be breathed in by D or E who were next in line to be tested. I guess you can kind of try this experiment at home, right? When you close a door, if you close it quickly enough, it creates a waft of air. Now you imagine tiny little particles hanging in the air, being blown out into the corridor. Then when the next door opens, 
sometime later, those particles are brought in towards the people opening that door and infecting them. But this is mind-bogglingly specific. To be able to narrow down an outbreak to a single waft of air propelled down a corridor by one door closing and then another one opening. So they found out it wasn't the bin, it was doors. So what did the authorities in New Zealand do with this information? I guess it's good to know, right? Because they know there isn't community transmission, it wasn't in a in a cafe or a restaurant. But what did they do in the quarantine hotel to make sure that this didn't happen again? Did they get rid of all the bins? Did they stop people from opening their doors? What actually happened? That's not actually too far off what they did. Instead of going door to door doing COVID-19 tests, health officials now jump between different rooms on different floors. So there's much less chance of a buildup of infectious virus particles in the air. One way to think about it if you like, is if someone had been eating garlic bread in a room and they left and you came in a minute later or two minutes later, even if they'd left and there's no garlic in the room, you probably still smell that garlic in the air, right? And that's this whole idea that airborne particles linger around. So there's this risk that extends beyond the time that that person is in that room. They did actually change the bins as well. So now they can be operated with touch. So it's a every little helps kind of thing. They may as well remove that uh, source of you know, transmission, it, even if it could be transmission, they may as well remove every source if possible. A different rotor for testing and fancy bins is basically what it came down to. And that's quite a, a simple solution to come to at the end of it. But this whole saga of the bin and the corridor and the doors really shows how difficult it is for New Zealand to keep itself at COVID zero or near enough. This is an enormous task that requires a huge amount of effort to make sure that every time there is a blip, that they can track it really, really quickly and shut it down. So what I'm wondering is, is this where the rest of the world is headed eventually? Will we all one day be obsessing over bins and corridors? Yeah, and that's the the key question, if you like, because this bin mystery is fun, but it's only one case. The reason why it's important is that it really highlights what you have to do if you want to stop every single case from getting into your country and you want to intercept every single outbreak before it becomes a case of community transmission. And really, this question that you're asking, James, is about zero COVID. This idea that you suppress transmission until there are no cases in the community at all. And it's a strategy that New Zealand has taken since very early in the pandemic. And it really has worked. Like I said, 26 deaths, two and a half thousand cases. I've been speaking to people in New Zealand. Life is pretty much normal. I think there's the advice that you should wear a face mask on public transport, but nightclubs are open, restaurants are open, all of these things, apart from some intermittent regional lockdowns, things have pretty much been as normal for a year or so. The real question is, would zero COVID work in the UK? It's been proposed by a few public figures. It's it's popped up quite a lot of times in the last year or so. What we have to think about is that the situation in the UK is pretty different from what it's like in New Zealand. So about a month ago, the data's a little bit lagged because of how um, uh, these surveys work. But about a month ago, there were around 1,100 new positive cases each day in England alone. And although transmission is way, way down from its peaks in January and December, this is really, really far off what you might call zero COVID. Remember, in Uh, In New Zealand, we're talking about no cases of community transmission on almost every single day. Now, I spoke to some scientists about this. And one scientist I spoke to, she's called Kathleen O'Reilly. She's an epidemiologist at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And she said that a more achievable strategy than zero COVID might be what she calls eliminating COVID-19 as a public health 
problem. And she said this is basically bringing transmission down to sufficiently low levels where it has a pretty minimal impact on the public health system. So that's low hospitalizations. But it's also accepting that there is some level of transmission that will happen in the population. So it's not taking this New Zealand model where you do everything you can to intercept a case and then trace back a case before it becomes a problem. Now, very low transmission is a world away from no transmission at all, but it will mean a big shift in the way that outbreaks are handled. If transmission rates get low enough, it's likely that outbreaks will be dealt with at more of a local level, more like the way that local health authorities deal with influenza and norovirus outbreaks. So really what we're talking about is this transition from COVID-19 from an acute pandemic disease where you have national level, regional level responses to deal with it to a slightly more usual kind of infectious disease or you have the same with foodborne illnesses, an ongoing public health response. And that's really the decision and the pathway that's facing countries like the UK now. Even with the vaccine rollout, right? So we've sort of seen examples of this in the UK already, right? And even right at the beginning of the pandemic, it was assumed that we'd be able to deal with this on a local level. You know, there was the the case, I think it was in York and people being bused to quarantine hotels really, really early on. There was the guy in, in Brighton, I think it was. We thought that we could handle this by following individual people. And then it became apparent that this thing was spiralling out of control. But more recently, there's been a, a sort of a, a more targeted approach, right? So last month, there was a mad scramble to identify a person who had tested positive for the Brazilian variant of COVID. And the UK is very wary of variants getting inside its borders and causing problems with the vaccination program. It took a team of about 40 people a week to hunt down this one person who was in Croydon who hadn't filled in the paperwork with their test correctly. If you compare that to spring 2020, when the UK basically decided to allow COVID-19 to run riot through the population, so it's a big change but what you're saying is zero covid is an even bigger change still so is it possible or even realistic for the vast majority of the world especially countries that aren't fairly isolated islands to pursue zero covid there are two points to this response really one is a bit like what you just said james is realizing that pockets of susceptibility are going to exist no matter what you do. So there are people who couldn't have the vaccine because they might be immunosuppressed or people who refused to have the vaccine or there are people who had the vaccine, but it didn't protect them. Um, after all, we know that not everyone that gets the vaccine ends up being protected by the vaccine. Or it might be young people who at the moment aren't in line to get the vaccine. We're not sure when or if that will happen. So whatever you do, there's going to be pockets and potentially quite substantial pockets of people who aren't protected by the vaccine. And that means you've got people in the community that are vulnerable. If you think about a disease, a really infectious disease like measles, we have really, really high vaccine coverage, but you still get isolated outbreaks and they're dealt with on a case by case basis. Now, we saw that with uh, measles a couple of years ago. It was because there's a kind of quite a big clutch of people, young people who hadn't been vaccinated in West London. And we maybe will see similar dynamics here. We'll say, well, why do we have this outbreak in this area? Is vaccine denial high in that area? Is it because these people haven't been reached for whatever reason? Is this because these people are within a a care facility that has certain requirements? So there's that. There's this idea that there will be susceptibility in particular areas and understanding why transmission is happening in those areas and what you can do to stop it will be really, really important. Do we isolate a region? Do we change uh, you know, requirements for care homes? Do we get some preventative treatments for people in care homes? These are all really, really important questions. But the other bit of what you were talking about, James, is the border problem. And in some ways, this is the trickier bit. So New Zealand has 
pretty much the strictest border measures in the world, but it's also only vaccinated just under 2% of its population. Now, that's partly because it has no transmission, so it doesn't really need to vaccinate its population right now, and it does have enough vaccine to vaccinate them. It's going to happen eventually, but obviously, when you haven't got transmission, there's not this great drive to do it, although if they want to open up, they're going to have to vaccinate their population. Now, in a country like the UK that has much looser border restrictions, there's the risk that even in a mostly vaccinated population... What we'll end up doing is importing lots of new cases from other parts of the world. They might be these more dangerous variants, and that might spark a new outbreak. Like you said, James, you're talking about the Brazilian variant. I think if anyone's following the news in Brazil, looking at this, this P1 variant and what, what that's doing to the country, how it's you know, still kind of ripping through the population, goes to show that even if you're not following a zero COVID policy bringing elements of that policy to your border controls and thinking about how you would intercept, um, you know, new variants is going to be really, really important. So that's perhaps about genomic sequencing at the border. It's about red listing countries. The government has already experimented with some of these policies. But although we might not be following the full zero COVID response, I think it's true that there are certain elements that we can learn from and that you might see being in place for the next, you know, next six months, next two years. It's going to become an ongoing learning curve, I think. And we're seeing countries all over the world making different mistakes, even a year into the pandemic. So I think the Brazilian variant is spreading quite widely in parts of Canada. We've got case rates really, really taking off in many parts of the US linked to the UK variant. There are more people in intensive care in France right now than there have been at any other period during the pandemic. Germany wants to go into a national lockdown because cases are soaring. So countries really need to pay attention to the level of care that New Zealand is taking to eliminate COVID and keep COVID out of its country and learn from those lessons and see how they can apply them, if not to a zero COVID policy, but to a very, very high level of suppression. Podcast at wired.co.uk. I know we've got listeners from all over the world. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on how where you live is handling the pandemic and dealing with this really, really difficult problem of making sure that you don't get a third or a fourth or even a fifth wave of covid podcast at wired.co.uk our second story this week is about dairy-free cheese which is having a bit of the moment you can now get everything from cashew nut camembert to coconut derived faux stilton to rice starch mozzarella and chickpea flour parmesan according to the good food institute sales grew by 18 percent in the us in 2019 compared to just a one percent growth for traditional animal derived cheese and forecasts predict that the global vegan cheese market is going to triple in worth to $7 billion by 2030. But as Vicky's been finding out, there's a bit of a problem. Yeah, they don't actually taste of cheese. I mean, I'm, I may be generalising a bit there, to be fair, but historically, certainly, dairy-free cheese hasn't really tasted like the real thing. A lot of options that I've tried, you know, they might be a bit salty, they might be a bit oily, or often they just don't taste of much at all. And, and you know, the texture's off too. They don't stretch, they don't melt, they don't bubble like you might expect a dairy cheese to. You can tell it's not actually cheese. So Jimmy Famarewa has written a fantastic story all about the companies who are trying to solve this problem because there's a reason for this and it all comes down to the science of cheese and in particular two proteins that really make cheese cheese, casein and whey protein. These give cheese its unique texture and taste, and they're both found in cow's milk, but not in dairy-free alternatives. 
Now, some startups have started trying to get around this problem by making fake cheese that uses the same scientific building blocks, but without the animal involved. They're basically trying to bring casein and whey protein into the dairy-free cheese. Uh, if you can still call it dairy-free, I'm not sure. That's probably <laughs> a technical point. Um, so we, uh, Jimmy spoke to you for this feature, a guy called Ryan Pandya, whose journey into the world of dairy-free cheese started with a bad bagel. This was back in 2014, and he had just graduated from Tufts University with a degree in chemical and biological engineering. He was working for a company in Boston making antibodies. Uh, he just switched to a plant-based diet, but he was really, really craving a cream cheese bagel. And he drove for 20 minutes during his lunch break to a place that he heard served a, you know, an animal-free version of a cream cheese bagel. But from the moment that he saw this kind of dairy-free gloop spilling out of the bagel, he knew he'd made a huge mistake. Um, now, this was around the time, was around 2013, when the lab-grown beef burger, you might remember this being quite a big story back at the time, this is artificially cultured meat. And Pandia was already using yeast cells in his job to replicate proteins for these antibodies. And he started to wonder whether he could apply the same principle to make milk uh, and therefore cheese. You know, could you take this culturing process and apply it to foodstuffs? Uh, you know, not just meat, but also dairy. Uh, so he mentioned the idea to a friend who put him in touch with Paramal Gandhi, who was another scientist who'd had a similar idea. And together they founded a company that's now called Perfect Day and which, you know, in the last seven years has accumulated more than $360 million in funding. Yeah, so as you say, Perfect Day is basically trying to make these these same proteins, but without the involvement of a cow. So they started with whey protein. And how it works is they've got the genetic sequence of the protein, and they then engineer yeast to produce it instead of a cow. Uh, so effectively, they're giving yeast cells the DNA blueprint of the protein that they want, and the yeast reads this and basically prints it out. They nicknamed their yeast Buttercup because it works like an artificial cow for them, growing the whey protein itself. All the genetic material is ultimately filtered from the protein, so it's absent even of animal genetic code. And using this whey protein, they've made a cream cheese. That's their first cheese product. But they're not the only ones doing this. There, there are other companies at the forefront of this kind of lab-made, cow-free dairy market. So there's New Culture, another Bay Area-based startup, which is using uh, the same similar method to make mozzarella, uh, mozzarella cheese with that kind of stretch that you get from mozzarella. Um, in Singapore, Turtle Tree Labs is using uh, cow, goat, and even camel cells into uh, bioreactor-grown milk. Impossible Foods, which you might know from the plant-based burger sector, is also working on an impossible milk prototype. But this isn't the only approach to making dairy-free milk or dairy-free cheese, is it? No. So while some companies are trying to create identical products but without the animal by artificially creating the proteins that are actually found in dairy milk it's definitely not the only way to do it another startup that jimmy looked at is called stockel dreamery based in sweden and it's using a different method that doesn't involve going anywhere near animals or animal genetic code at all it was founded by a guy called Soros Tavakoli, and his motivation is very climate-driven. Uh, the dairy industry is responsible for a lot of greenhouse gases. Obviously, there's a lot of land use required for raising cattle and so on. Uh, so he wanted to find a more environmentally friendly plant-based alternative. I'm working with food scientist Anja Leisner. They're using plants as a base, but they're doing it in quite a precise 
scientific way, analysing the proteins from plants such as fava beans or peens, peens, peas, <laughs> to try to find a close enough match to casein that will result in the same kind of texture. So their idea is to find something that doesn't need all of the emulsifiers and gums and things that a lot of vegan cheeses on the market use and that a lot of people complain, you know, maybe make it feel a bit fake, give it a bit of a fake taste or texture. And they're planning on releasing their first product using this method this year, which is a, a, a dairy-free cheese inspired by feta. So like a, a block that crumbles and has that kind of tangy feta taste. So this approach is, is more similar to, I guess, to what we've already got on the market. It's just a bit more of a refined version of maybe some of the vegan cheeses that exist in supermarkets at the moment. It's got benefits over the microbial approach. It's easier to get approval because it's not really a new idea. And it's probably easier to scale up production if we're not relying on new and untested technology. And there's a much clearer route to market, you know, as demonstrated by the growing availability of dairy-free cheeses. But it's not entirely clear which approach is going to win out in the long run. Yeah, there's two different views here, which are very much demonstrated by these two companies' different approaches, really. The big benefit, of course, of microbial fermentation is that, theoretically, you should end up with something that's basically the same as real cheese, right? You're using the same proteins, even if you've got them in a different way. So if you're looking for the closest likeness, that may seem the logical way to go, a bit like if you're making meat-free meat by culturing cells. But there are different thoughts on which makes most business sense. Do you need the product that most closely resembles dairy cheese? Or if you get something that's nice, that tastes good out first, will you take the market? And speed is quite important at this point. As you said, there's lots of companies currently in the space. So getting something out to consumers, getting your product out there first, may be quite strategically important. We've seen that with some of the meat-free meat meat products you know there's a couple of companies that sort of managed to get there first and get their name out there uh, and really became the go-to brands yeah i think this is a really interesting point and and you can see parallels of it with the alt milk market as well you don't want to spend hundreds of millions of dollars creating a uh, a form of fake milk that's biologically indistinguishable from real milk only to find that everyone stopped drinking real milk five years ago anyway because they're all drinking oat milk and soy milk uh and you can see that potentially happening here where people switch to plant-based vegan cheese well before these kind of animal-based but not animal-derived vegan cheeses or dairy-free cheeses are ready. Um, but I think the different business models in these two different routes are reflected in their approaches to marketing. So Perfect Day, which is obviously creating this cultured cheese, is working with big food corporations kind of sticking to the mass market. They're following the same route that other biotech plant-based food businesses have followed so vegan trees brand Miyoko joined a Nestle backed accelerator in 2018 impossible food signed this landmark deal with Burger King in 2020 uh, Pandya the uh, perfect day co-founder says this makes sense because they're not trying to make something niche they're trying to make something that's going to have a big impact on the way we eat uh, Stockel Dreamery who are doing this plant-based more refined version of, of uh, dairy-free cheese, they take a different approach. So instead of working with big corporate clients, as others have tried to, they're approaching professional chefs and restaurants. This is partly to make maximum impact with the limited amount of cheese they're able to make at the moment. But it's also a way to try and curate how people first interact with this cheese. I think because it's not identical to dairy-derived cheese, to, to animal-derived cheese, they've got this barrier to taste and they need to convince people that yes this can do the job of real cheese yes this is an appropriate substitute for feta in whatever you might be making and 
So they think that the way to do that is to approach restaurants so that people try it for the first time in a restaurant in a more controlled environment. And then that opens a more of a window to acceptability in the long run. Um, But it all raises this question of, you know, who are these products actually for? You know, are they for vegans who stopped eating cheese years ago or are they for people who eat cheese now, but perhaps want to do so in a more environmentally friendly way? You might think the obvious market is vegans, you know, people who don't eat dairy, maybe looking for a dairy free alternative, but that may not be the case. First up, you know, there's a question over whether most vegans who choose to eat a dairy free diet would actually want to eat a dairy free cheese that has specifically been designed to resemble an animal product, right? Some people might feel a bit uncomfortable with that. Some people might be like, you know, it might be a resounding yes, they've been waiting for this all their lives. Um, But it could be off-putting, especially uh, the microbial fermentation technique. One vegan cheesemonger that Jamie spoke to was sceptical that the new cheeses would, A, be that much different to what's already available, particularly at the higher end of the market. And B, anecdotally, wasn't sure if her customers would really go for something that's based on animal genetic code in that way. You know, it might almost be too close to the real thing. Um, But really, the companies in this space are hoping for a larger market. They want to tempt people who would normally eat dairy and maybe even meat to switch to a dairy-free alternative. Just as we've seen with companies like Oatly in the dairy-free milk category, they've had success beyond people who are on strict plant-based diets. Um, And they think that once you've got a good enough alternative, maybe everyone will consider a substitute. You know, if you've got the choice of dairy cheese or dairy-free cheese, and if the dairy-free cheese tastes enough like like the dairy cheese or tastes good in its own right, then maybe you will just make that choice regardless of your own kind of ethical or dietary choices. Yeah, I think it's a really, really interesting question. And it's going to be really interesting to see how this race plays out on supermarket shelves over the next few years. I think from my perspective, I don't, uh, you know, I'd, I'd more than happily eat vegan cheese if it tasted like enough like cheese that I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. I'm not married to the idea that milk has to come from a cow or cheese has to come from from milk and I think maybe that's the case for a lot of people that once it reaches the point where it tastes and costs the same as the real thing then why wouldn't you make the switch but I'm interested to see what you guys think as a meat-eating dairy consuming human being it's not a question of would you it's a it's more a case of you're gonna have to right the environmental impact of the dairy industry as it exists now is unsustainable the environmental impact of the meat industry as it exists now is unsustainable so there's going to have to come a point in time where people go okay i no longer eat cheese as i know it but i'm going to use these alternatives and we'll just have to accept that that's that's the way that things have to be that it is unsustainable to have big dairy and big meat and to tackle the climate crisis and i'm i'm not particularly fussed about that right i love going to a cheesemonger's and picking out some new things and 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 trying and trying new cheeses but it's it's not something that i love so much that i'd quite like to see the planet destroyed so that i can have a particularly delicious comté right yeah i have to say so i I don't eat meat or, meat or dairy and I very basically would just be happy to have like a decent cheddar. As both of you said, really, vegan cheese is rubbish. There's a lot of good alternatives, but vegan cheese texture's weird, taste is kind of weird and, and oily. So I have very, very low standards and I would happily guzzle up the first vegan cheddar that melts all right, tastes pretty cheesy 
and um, you know, it doesn't matter how much it costs. So as soon as it's here, I am well up for it. Would you be bothered, Matt, if it came from you know, if the genetic code used to make it originally came from a cow, or does that not really bother you? Or would you rather have a plant-based, wholly plant-based version? Well, if the genetic code came from a cow, I'm not too bothered about that, because if you're just replicating it, it's quite, that's fine with me. It's interesting, because obviously the, the, the parallel is the Impossible Burger, where, you know, it's slightly, it has this, this edited, uh, you know, kind of, uh, soy hemoglobin molecule. I, I probably, as you mentioned, that's more of an issue from regulators' point of view because the Impossible Burger is not improved in the UK or the EU because of this GMO component to it. So that might pr- present a bit more of a, a problem. But certainly for me, it doesn't bother me if it has some genetic code. I mean, if we had to kill lots of cows and extract the genetic code from their blood or something, that might be a bit more of a problem. But I don't really mind where it came from. To me, it's more about you know, what was done in the production of that. It's interesting, though, because I wonder, it might be great if you can create a vegan cream cheese, but I wonder if it will always struggle to replicate the great variety of cheeses that are out there from, you know, mozzarella to ricotta or, or you know, parmesan or all these kind of things. It's a little bit like the problem with cultured meat that, yeah, you can make an OK burger, you can make an OK chicken nugget, but can you make a steak? Can you make a, you know, you know whatever, a particular cut of meat? It becomes much more difficult there. So I wonder if we'll have the easy cheeses. But like I said, I'll, I'll settle for the, the low end of the market very quickly. I think that's the thing for me as a cheese lover, as someone who eats and adores cheese. Um, you know, I could, I, I, I choose non-dairy milks because I don't really notice the difference. Um, so I'm happy to use an oat milk or a soya milk in my breakfast or in my coffee. Um, but I think, you know, if I was putting together a cheese board at the moment, I'm not sure that I could really envision kind of high-end luxury cheeses with enough variety and quality to to let me you know choose a dairy-free option over the real stuff but if you could get like an everyday vegan vegan cheese dairy-free cheese to cook with to like you know put in your pasta sauce or whatever or cheese on toast I definitely make that switch just as I have with milk so maybe there's like different markets here but obviously to do that I think things like price are going to be really important because most people are not going to choose a dairy-free alternative to your everyday cheese if it's much more expensive. So that's definitely something that's going to play into this equation. That's the thing, isn't it? And I can't see, no matter how good dairy-free cheese gets, I can't see it ever fully replacing the full gamut of cheeses that are available. And I think you'll always get these artisan producers of real cheese, in inverted commas, that will be doing their thing and it will be almost become a luxury item but and this is the example pandia uses you know if you're just picking up a cheese sandwich at a service station on your way somewhere and you don't really care too much about the taste and you just want to eat something i think that's the use case where this could really really have a big impact on the environment 100 percent agreed i think the point that vicky made about the sort of artisan pretty pricey cheese board we may have to accept that that cheese potentially gets even more expensive and even more of a treat and that for the vast majority of the time if we want to solve this problem and save the planet that the kind of slurry of cheese that sits below the best of the best needs to come from a source other than animals but what do you guys think podcast at wired.co.uk are you a ferocious cheese eater or have you already made the switch to vegan alternatives what do you think of what's out there do get in touch we didn't get any of your emails this week matt burgess was so upset that he decided not to come on the show so please do get in touch with your thoughts on anything we discussed this week podcast at wired.co.uk 
share your favourite cheeses, share your favourite podcast facts that you'd like us to read out, podcast at wired.co.uk. Make Matt Burgess happy and do get in touch. We'll leave it there for this week. Thanks so much for listening, as always. We'll be back again same time next week. Take care. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.